Welcome everyone to the Eat Real to Heal podcast where I'm Nicolette Richet, your host of this podcast, and I'm so excited for today's episode with Dr. Zach Bush, MD. Now, I've been uh, doing research and writing papers on soil regeneration for almost 22 years, Um, starting with one of my earliest courses that I took on environment and agriculture. And I was over the moon, thrilled, like actually shaking in my boots, heart stopped, um, you know, brain numbed when I came across Dr. Zach Bush's podcast on the Rich Roll podcast where he talked about the need to regenerate our soil, the um, the fact that he talked about his incredible nutrition center and wellness center that he has in Virginia where they use food as medicine. And it just felt so good to have this medical doctor who slowly over the years um, came up upon all of these discoveries and now has a huge science team working together, PhDs, other doctors that are doing extensive research into soil regeneration, working with farmers who are our heroes. They're the people who put food on the planet. They're the ones who can protect our soils so that we don't lose this nutrient-dense life-giving soil that creates our food. They're the ones who put the food on your plate. So when I came across Zach Bush and saw that he was also making a documentary, a docu-series called Farmer's Footprint, and when I just heard him talk about, I mean, so many different things, um, human consciousness, uh, the connection between uh, the environment and human health. We talk about so much on this podcast, for example, um, and so much that we didn't get to talk about. But we talk about antibiotics and depression. We talk about physicians and suicide. We talk about the high suicide rates amongst farmers. We talk about how easy it is for farmers to actually, once they can develop the inspiration and the courage and the knowledge, when they can step out of their current practices and into these new practices to reclaim their land. And really, at the end of the day, reclaim their um, pocketbooks and and their bank accounts because farmers around the globe are losing so much money based on these genetically modified Monsanto farming practices, which has decimated the farming industry, the farming economy, and decimated the lives of so many farmers around the world. We talk about um, how do physicians who come across the information that Dr. Zach Bush has come across and the information that I've been so fortunate to have come across in my life and really to have built all their businesses on, how do these physicians step out and away from the existing medical system that they spent eight to 10 or 12 years studying within and probably 20 to 30 years for some of them working within and how do they remove their white coats and step into their citizen clothes to really truly start making a change in the healthcare system. So I hope you stay with us. It's an hour and a half long, which is perfect. You can take in this podcast in bite-sized pieces, no pun intended, even if it's only 15 minutes at a time, um, fall asleep listening to it. Really, when it comes to long-form podcasts, you know, we don't always have the time to listen to a full hour and a half uninterrupted, but you can take it in in 20-minute segments. Um, And, you know, over a few times throughout the day or throughout the week, you're going to absorb it all, but you do not want to miss this podcast. So please welcome Dr. Zach Bush, who is one of the few triple board certified physicians in the United States. He has expertise, like I mentioned, in internal medicine, endocrinology, metabolism, hospice, and palliative care as well. 
Uh, The breakthrough science that Dr. Bush and his colleagues have delivered offers profound new insights into our modern disease epidemics, as well as human health and longevity. His business innovation and educational mission provide a foundation of cutting edge philosophy and science for a grassroots movement that will change our business and legislative structures and ultimately upshift consumer behavior to bring about radical change in the mega industries of big farming, big pharma, and Western medicine. So welcome Dr. Zach Bush to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. Welcome, Dr. Zach Bush. Thank you for being here on the Eat Real to Heal podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, so glad to be here. Um, so, Dr. Bush, the reason I want to have you on the podcast is because I first heard about you um, through the Rich Roll podcast, and it's obviously a very well-listened-to podcast. Um, you've been on the show twice now, I believe. Is that correct? Yes, yeah. Yeah, so two long-form um podcast with him where you dive deep into the, I mean, so many topics that you covered, but of course, to summarize it, it would probably be about soil regeneration, restoring the microbiome, not only in the soil, but also in our bodies as well. And that's something that I think you dive into more than anybody else that I've ever come across. Um, so we're going to be chatting a lot about that today. So all for all the listeners out there, um, what we need you to do is to listen to those first two podcasts with Rich Roll, and that'll bring you up to speed. So if you're not able to pick up what uh, Dr. Bush is throwing down in this podcast, um, you're going to need to go back and get yourself up to speed because we're going to take it um, from there and hopefully introduce some more concepts and topics and dive deeper into things. So I know you and I think about you every time um, I think about your beautiful being and the work that you're doing in this world. You are the soil regeneration doctor. Would you say mm-hmm. that's pretty true? Thank you. Yeah, I think it, uh, I think that is you know, definitely part of my flow for sure. I'm definitely uh, finding myself in a place in the world that I didn't uh, intend to get to. It wasn't a a proactive effort to become an expert in this area, but I found my way through a very winding path. Uh, Ten years ago, I was developing chemotherapy and very much in the pharmaceutical model. And so I've had a very long deconstructive phase of my career uh, to get me to the point where I could reconstruct into uh, my current vein of passion and uh, I think impact, which is around this understanding of environmental health and human health and the opposite environmental disease and and dismantling through our chemical processes and its impact on human disease. And I love how you say that because um, that connection, it's really truly is an inextricable link between human health and environmental health. And it's one and the same. And that's where, you know, with our reductionist approach to science and medicine and um, to the way we just view the world, everything has been so siloed. And you're somebody who has taken a very systems um, perspective, which um, when you first started going back, because were you an engineer? Is that what I caught from one of your books? Actually, that's, yeah, that was my initial trajectory. I was uh, going to, I was intending to be at the University of Colorado for engineering, and then um, through the classic redirect of life, which was some heartbreak, uh, I had my first big girlfriend in, in high school and experienced a lot of kind of heartbreak and, and uh, real question of my own spirituality and my own sense of self and my ba- healthy boundaries and things like that. And in that journey, I decided I needed a year off. And so I took a year off and wasn't sure what I was going to do, but within a few hours of making that decision, uh, I had an aunt call up to see if I wanted to travel to the Philippines to work with a great group of international midwives there and birth babies in the, the squats and the poor regions around Manila, Philippines. 
and uh, that sounded really weird and outside the box. I'd never thought about a medical career, and, and that sounded cool. So jumped into that, and I worked for six months at a tire company busting tires and uh, had tail and grease for six months making enough money to get to the Philippines and got there and had totally life transformational experiences around these women uh, birthing these babies in the most adverse possible experiences you can possibly imagine. Uh, you know, the, the amount of poverty, the amount of lack of infrastructure, the, la the lack of any, you know, family units as the family units were breaking down so severely there uh, because of the poverty and, and the stressors and the substance abuse and everything else in these poor regions. Um, I got to see something of life that was extraordinary and that was the resilience of these tiny little babies being born into this environment that seemingly would have no hope whatsoever. And I saw just the most extraordinary examples of uh, the, a tiny, you know, four pound baby having a drive for life. And that stuck with me. And when I get depressed or I get a little bit exhausted or I miss a couple nights of sleep and start to wonder what the hell is the point of working so hard to change the world, it's easy to think back on those little infants and be like, wait a second, you know, at, at the fabric level, we're built of drive for life. That's, that's, that's what we are. We, we are life force from the instant we are conceived and uh, life force continues after we die. And that's something I learned much later, uh, 20 years later when I became a hospice doctor, learning that you know, at the opposite end of the, uh, the, the, the other end of the library there with the you know, bookmark at the end of the book, it's another birth, it's another rebirth that we have and it's not an end point of death. It's a, an opportunity for another transformation and another transition uh, just as profound and, and as expansive as that of a child emerging from the birth canal there. So I guess the bookends of my career are really speaking to the fact that uh, if we try to define the human experience by our short lifespan, we will continuously continue to be really confused, lost, and hopeless. If we start to, to realize human life is bigger than the life of a human, if we start to realize that humanity is the life force that we are called to participate in, and it's no, no longer about you know climbing a corporate ladder or being successful in your school or college or career, it's about being successful as uh, as in a, a being that has the capacity for awareness and and to wake up and to have a sense of connectedness to the entire universe. It just it shifts everything for me myself, and it's unfortunately not something that happens once as a moment of enlightenment and then it sticks with you. Unfortunately, our human programming and the deluge of small-mindedness that we're, we're constantly surrounded by from Twitter feeds from our own president on down to uh, the drab stuff that comes peddling out of CNN or Fox or whatever it is. It's just like we the, the, the social experience that we're in and unfortunately the intellectual environment of academia is so small-minded in the end it's yeah. profoundly myopic and profoundly you know unsustainable in this design and so because we choose to steep ourselves in that voluntarily or sometimes involuntarily we have to constantly be retapping into this memory of whoa we are ancient souls here to showing up right now at this pinnacle, this tipping point of human history where we will either go extinct in the next decades or we will transform and rebirth inside these bodies to, to live out a completely different existence than humanity's ever been able to participate in and survive through that and not only survive but thrive with a planet 
and be co-creative with this planet instead of consumptive and destructive. Okay, so that was um, an incredible monologue that I can see you delivering on any stage across the world and getting a standing ovation. There's no doubt about that. Now, now we have to take it back to answer questions. <laughs> <laughs> but good thing you gave it twenty minutes. <laughs> oh my gosh, exactly. But here's the thing that I have found the most challenging because. Like everything you said, I've resonated with and been and felt connected with, like since I was a little girl, like looking, I remember being, you know, probably seven or eight years old, looking at these pansies growing in my mother's garden and just being like in complete amazement as to how nature is designed and can create the perfect black, like black lines on a pansy. But every pansy has those black lines. Every pansy is these different shades of colors and they all have a particular type of leaf. Um, you know, and then feeling that I was much, you know, a, a, a part of something much bigger than myself. And I remember laying in the grass, you know, as an 11 year old looking up at the sky and contemplating the existence of, you know, we can call it God, we can call it whatever, but knowing that there was something much bigger out there. But I work with, you know, just like you do, I work with clients on a one-on-one basis. And we just ran a physician's training retreat at our wellness center. And, you know, if I were to start off with, with that beautiful speech that you started off with, like these physicians would be like, you're out to lunch. Like, what are you talking about? These people are, you know. So my question is that when I'm working with clients and, you know, they are in chronic pain, they are diseased, they're covered from head to toe in psoriasis, they have cancer and they're up against this time, you know, clock um, called cancer. And how do you take a person from, you know, coming out of the educational institutions that we've created that have completely let down our societies um, for physicians as well? How do you take them from that understanding of what it means to be a human being on this planet um, to where where you've arrived. And I mean, you didn't arrive at that point, at that point overnight. I'm, I'm. Yeah. Guessing. I think that's, that's the luxury that I have. And when I go and talk to my colleagues around the world now is um, I can, I can take them on a lot of my journey in a fast forward state, you know, instead of making them go through the 15 years of, of agony of, of deconstruction, not knowing if there's anything at the end of that, I can tell them right away, there's something really great at the end of this journey of deconstruction. Let me walk with me for, for 90 minutes. It takes me about two, two and a half hours to get just kind of the basics laid out for a physician uh, community. And so I just did this for a group of residents and, and med students two weeks ago up in Oregon. And in that two hours, I can help them kind of rapidly deconstruct what they thought they were studying for and going towards their MD versus what they need to start to refocus on. And so in some ways, it's much more a story of empowering the the physician or the practitioner at any level to become far more efficacious and efficient in the way in which they bring health. And the stunning thing is, of course, we're not trained in health, we're trained in disease management. And yet, uh, what I was able to do over the, you know, the last decade in my career was, okay, here's all this understanding of disease. What if I reverse that lens and start to look up the hill to the very first semblances of, of health and where it started to decay that would allow for this disease to emerge at this stage of this person's life? And it took quite a long time. And, and frankly, it's taken a lot of, of science expertise that uh, I didn't hold myself. It's taken a huge team around me. So we have our own basic science labs here. We have MD, PhD from Brazil. We have PhDs from uh, formerly with Johns Hopkins and the like at University of Virginia. And, 
And so we got this huge, great think tank that's, you know, kind of starting to really put together the fundamental structure of human health. And when I start physicians off there, it's a very easy build from there because ultimately when they think through it, that's what they wanted when they went into medical school. They obviously wanted to know how to create health for their patients. And in the end, we're totally neutered in our own altruistic desires as people who went into medicine to find out that we're really just arms of a pharmaceutical or technological biomedical engineering you know, e economy really more than even an industry. And we've become the arbiters of this economy. We become the, the tradesmen and, and craftspeople within this economy that is fueling n neither health nor disease. It's really fueling the bottom lines on these massive mega corporations that own our very food chain now. So um, it's a, a stunning moment for physicians. And, you know, the comments that come out like from those med student students, they send me their comments a couple of days later through their teachers and and, you know, it ranges from mind blown to, you know, when can he come back to I'm so depressed to I can't, I've never been more excited to be a physician, you know. And it, it, I think that the, all of those ranges of response and emotions are appropriate. Um, and the, the human mind has to be allowed to go through the journey, uh, the emotional journey that would, would come out of the, the intellectual journey. Uh, and we should embrace those things and reflect on why, why do you feel disappointed when you find out that what you're practicing is not truth? What, what, what does that speak to? Ultimately, it speaks to your soul's desire for the truth. <laughs> like, exactly. If you're willing to now intellectually consider you're doing the wrong thing and intellectually consider the possibility of doing something different, there's a driving force for truth in you. And that should give us all a real sense of solace. And so as, as I've never met a practitioner that to their core is not interested in having a positive impact on their patients. I think they have to sometimes you have to tease that out of them because there's a lot of doctors who are jaded and are defensive and practicing more of a, a legal defense than a medical practice. And there's a lot of doctors that are just burned out and feel like they are in it just for the money now because, well, if I can't have a positive impact on my patients or they're always you know, trying to figure out how to sue me, then I might as well extract as much money from them as possible. You know, you do hear those things around, you know, tables of physicians. But ultimately, I think if you have a moment with that person, you realize, well, that's just a broken hearted doctor. It's a doctor who you know, very likely went in for all the right reasons and now uh, finds themselves bereft of, of the tools that would be efficacious. And so they're trying to extract pleasure instead of reward. And this is something that I've seen over and over again. Um, I actually started my journey into soil health and nutrition and um, eating clean food and mental health um, about 22 years ago when I showed up in an agriculture and environment class and I brought in envelopes of soil. Um, little tiny envelopes of soil for every student in the class and the professor and I dumped the soil and every desk and I said I just want you to play with this soil well we have a discussion and you know when I talked about back then I mean it was really about um, you know the fungi and the parasites and the bacteria and every and the role that it played but I didn't have enough research back then I mean I think I was using like one of the original Mac computers that had the green blinking light to do try and do research and like everything was done from books in the library and staying up all night learning about this and I remember being so mesmerized by the life force in the soil and then I remember being so sad by 
people's reaction to know that there's bacteria and parasites and fungi and you know all these this living it's a living organism like that was crawling around on their desk and they were like ew gross and um so you know I started back then and the sad thing though going back to the physicians that I've seen with um being an educator and teaching this to my clients and to physicians is the level of depression. Um, 95% of my clients that come to me, they've been on antidepressants for years before their other chronic diseases showed up. Um, The physicians that I met at the, um, it was the PCRM Physicians Training Conference in Washington, D.C. last year. There was another one I attended in California. And when people learned about what I did at this conference, I had physicians coming up to me and showing me their slit wrists, the scars on their wrists. Um, This retreat that we just did at our wellness center, uh, I, I don't want to mention any names, but you know, one of the physicians had tried to take his life twice. And when he learned about this, that you know, food is medicine, that we need to protect the planet and the soil, and the fact that you know these pharmaceuticals, you know, for sure in acute cases are wonderful, not in these chronic disease cases. And they couldn't; they were struggling to bring health to their patients. Um, it just exacerbated the depression for them to the point of suicide. I remember being at Esalen and sitting in a hot tub and this young guy sits next to me, just graduated eight years of medical school. And he's like, I want to take my life. I cannot. And he's like, but I don't know how to get out of this. So one of the ways that I know with my clients is when they switch the diet, all of a sudden the depression shifts, it lifts it, you know, they're restoring their microbiome. But what do we do in the meantime? Um, because you can go around and you have, you know, you're one guy out there and you, you have a busy schedule and you're talking to people. Um, and it's almost like you're talking to them one-on-one in these conferences, even though, you know, you're speaking to hundreds of people and dozens of people at a time. But on a, you know, just educating the physicians, we have a, we're, it, that's encompassed in this larger framework of medical school and who designs the curriculum and the policies and that are in place and the insurance companies. So, what are some of the things that we need to consider as we are, um, let's say, enlightening or educating, you know, physicians into this new way of practicing? But in a way, I know that they say now the more they learn, the tighter the handcuffs feel for them. Yeah, I think you know, it's a heavy tale there for sure, and it's very accurate. Um, and we can go into you know, how this is not unique just to the physicians, but to all of us that are called into codependent relationships with the chemical industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, Farmers, I have found, are in exactly the same scenario as the physicians here, and that uh, I think there are a few groups uh, more, you know, that could represent that strong altruistic mode to to have a positive impact on on the world itself as our farmers. And so we have our physicians and farmers out to feed and heal the world, and we equip them and then with toxins in the form of pharmaceuticals and herbicides and pesticides that ultimately are damaging the planet and human health. And so there's a cognitive dissonance that I think runs on the subconscious level most of the time for physicians and farmers. They know they're doing the wrong thing. They know that their toolbox is not appropriate. They know their toolbox is not igniting soil health or human health. And yet, those are the ones that the banks are willing to pay them for to go into school debt or to go into farm debt. And so we have this codependent relationship between the source of money. Uh, in my case, you know, it was very much the NIH, you know, National Institutes of Health were the ones that were willing to put forth grants for my research, but only if my research matched their pharmaceutical development goals. And so I had to, you know, really walk the line in justifying my grant support to show that I was developing a niche 
chemical compound that would be, you know, make somebody lots of money someday. And of course, that's not the physician scientists at all. They, they never make the money from their discoveries. Uh, for the you know, 99% of them will go on to realize nothing from, from that. And some pharmaceutical company will partner with the university who technically owns all their ideas and will ultimately, you know, capitalize on just a few percent. Actually, that may be as low as half a percent of the good ideas that come out of a university actually get turned into a, a monetary and public health impact. So we're, we're miserably detached from positive impact. And that leads to the depression, I think, you know. Um, and so what is the organic version of that or the underpinnings? Uh, you mentioned nutrition, obviously, and across the planet, we're suffering a collapse in not only nutrients, but also the microbiome that would deliver those nutrients and the microbiome being that complex ecosystem of bacteria, fungi, viruses, parasites that you mentioned. There's a beautiful web of life out there that's vastly uh, larger than any human scale. It's the vast, you know, 99.9999% of the genetic activity on the planet is not human, uh, despite our effort to kill every animal that's larger than us. And so, uh, you know, we, we really are outnumbered no matter what we do by this microbiome. And yet, as, as we damage that microbiome, there's an immediate and equal impact on human health, which is only fair. And so what we're seeing now is that the uh, diet is determining uh, the microbiome diversity. Microbiome diversity is then determining how much serotonin and dopamine our gut lining makes. We now know that 90% of the serotonin developed in the body is actually made from your gut lining. One 50% of the dopamine made from your gut lining. Another 40% of the dopamine made from your kidneys. And so between your gut and kidneys, you make 90% of both serotonin and dopamine that would keep you out of depression in the first place. And so when we wipe out the microbiome, we eliminate its impact on the enteric endocrine cells to make the serotonin and dopamine and we suddenly are starving for fuel and the brain starts to get depressed. To give you a sense of the trajectory as a population, um, in the 1950s, we were around one in three people with major depression as prevalence. Now we're at one, I'm sorry, one in a hundred, right. one in a hundred, now we're at one in three, one in two uh, with uh, major depression. So we've gone from one in a hundred individuals affected to one in three or one in two, depending on which region of the states you're looking at. So. Um, just a, a devastating amount of depression out there. And so the, the fact that the farmers and the, and the doctors are caught up in this is just, you know, not surprising when you have a prevalence of one and two. Um, but I think that uh, the cognitive distance that's there definitely feeds into it. And uh, you would think that, you know, a new grad from residency and medical school would be at the top of their excitement and, and inspiration. If they're feeling uninspired at, at the moment that they're beginning their career, you can bet that they've, uh, had layers and layers and layers of cognitive dissident material, you know, fed into them during that time. And the amount of political BS that we witness in a hospital is pretty discouraging in and of itself. We watch our, you know, senior professors of medicine who've been at it for 30 to 40 years in academic medicine, and they're getting pay cuts all the time. They're getting treated like criminals by the insurance companies. They're getting investigated for fraud just because they're billing at a certain level because they're they're experts in the industry and they're mm -hmm. the specialists and yet they have to justify that all the time to the insurance companies and so at every level you see both the university and the greater infrastructure of healthcare treating people as if they're a number not a person treating people as if they're suspect in their uh, altruism rather than pure in their altruism and all the rest so 
when you do that long enough to any group of people, they get discouraged. And in that discouragement, they can lose that morale for life. So um, there's three particular doctors that I'm thinking of that uh, have seen my clients, you know, you know, go from being their patients to my clients, and then their diseases reverse everything from head to toe psoriasis, uh, heart disease, getting off meds, even though, you know, the whole all the family members on the, you know, the men in the family were all in the same meds, and they thought, no, it must be genetic. And, you know, they, um, they eat well, they restore their microbiome, their depression lifts, their energy comes back, um, and then they don't have a need for these meds. The doctors take them off. You know, I can tell lots and lots of stories, but I'm thinking of these three particular doctors that now have left practicing medicine. And that is not what I want. We need these doctors in the field. I mean, they've gone through the training. They've, um, you know, they have their licenses. They have the ability to help people, um, to run the test, to, you know, encourage and provide hope as well. And without them with their white lab coats on, it's almost, and, and I, and for me, I feel terrible. Like I'm almost feeling this panic because that's also not the solution or is it the solution is do we need to completely like dismantle the system entirely and have these doctors that have had these epiphanies walk away from the system and start something else become entrepreneurs is that you know what's your solution around that what do we do for these people who've come to this awareness yeah i think that is part of the natural and appropriate journey i think in order to to reassemble the deconstruction can need to be intense. And so I walked away from academia in 2010, um, stopped wearing a white coat and haven't worn a white coat since. Instead, I, in clinic, when I see my patients now, uh, I dress like anybody else on the street. <laughs> and I realized that you know the white coat phenomenon was part of the, the initial breakdown in communication with my patients. Mm -hmm. It's much more powerful to, to communicate with a human-to-human -human experience rather than a paternalistic, you know, kind of, I'm going to tell you how this is done and I'm going to tell you what's wrong with you to more asking at the soul level, what do you think's wrong with you? Right. You know, and that's a different journey and you have to go through quite a bit of humbling journey to get to that point where you're willing to rethink your medical practice like that. So I think you're watching three doctors on, on a very positive trajectory as long as they have community. And that was the thing I suffered the most with was a lack of community. It took a few years to find community. And so one of my big passions is to reconnecting these, you know, rugged individualists who are being brave enough to jump out of the common paradigm and forge their niche of a future of healthcare. And so we're uh, creating a brand that's called Powered by M. Uh, the letter M is a representation of balance in lots of different ways. And so mm -hmm. it's Powered by Balance or Powered by M. And uh, what we're doing is moving the Powered by M brand underneath all of these independently owned clinics around the country and ultimately around the world saying, I understand you have a niche of some sort of integrative technique or holistic approach to patient care and disease management. We're going to move in below all of you to create a, not only a, a very comprehensive approach for your patients to learn how to do, be preventive in their lifestyle so that you don't have to take the time uh, away from clinic to do that for them. We're going to provide all of that kind of university level education for your patients on to how they're going to practice a prevention and thrive mentality in their life. And then they're going to rely on you to be their guides when things go off the rails and get them back on track. And so I'm going to empower you with a curriculum beneath you, but then I'm also going to empower you with a community. And that's going to help you very quickly get your feet on the ground when you eject from the common paradigm. 
And that's that community uh, through Power by M is a network of clinics that can also share data and information together. We'll actually be tracking that so that if we can see that there's a clinic that happens to have developed a unique toolbox of equipment for Lyme disease, then we'll quickly go and interview that group and have them become the professors to the entire network uh, to show the new algorithm that's, that's working for Lyme in their clinics and then let that be tested out across the heterogeneous environment of different practices and different techniques and viewpoints to enrich and even make that more effective. And so looking to every physician to become faculty, looking to every physician to be a professor of medicine from their own area of expertise that they develop on their own, um, that's my excitement of, of the Powered by M brand. So we're building a training center down in Florida that opens up uh, less than 12 months now in January 2020. And uh, it's going to be a really neat place for us to gather as these you know, rugged individualists who can come into community and be sharpened and uh, further uh, boosts it up. And I think we will see a marked reduction in the depression and, uh, you know, despondence and, and dropping out of the industry that we see rampant right now. Okay, that's amazing. So I feel really good about myself right now because um, just before starting, we have seven plant-based restaurants called The Green Mustache, and um, we serve all 100% organic food, always have right since day one. We never, ever compromise on that because of the fact that when I worked in government before that, I actually wrote the policy on glyphosate use um, to ban glyphosate in our community. So I knew a lot about that before opening up the restaurants. and um, But in between working in government and starting the restaurants. Or while I was finishing working, I actually did my pre-med sciences, wrote my MCAT, started applying for med school. And a lot of doctors I interviewed said, don't do it. They were like, the minute you do that, you will not be able to teach anybody about food. And I was like, no. And I knew that. Um, but I thought there must be a way I can power through and change the system from within with the white coat on. And definitely what I've come to learn in the last um, five years since writing my MCAT, which is now expired. So that's a, you know, I don't think I'm going to go down that route, but I have to say thank you for that um, because I <laughs> still always think I should have gone for the white coat because it is really, truly still a symbol in our society for a lot of people. I mean, they all ask me even though I'm doing my PhD, even though I've been doing this research for 22 years, they're like, how come my doctor doesn't know about this? How come my doctor doesn't know that food is medicine? Or my doctor told me my, you know, disease has nothing to do with my diet. My doctor says organic doesn't matter. You know, all the things that come out of these doctors' mouths. Um, and I get it. It's because you would never go to the engineer and say, hey, could you also do my electrical work and my plumbing. You'd go to the plumber and the, you know, electrician for that. Um, and, you know, same thing, like going to a first grade teacher saying, you know, can you go in, you know, teach med school? Like you wouldn't do that. So, you know, I get that everybody's trained, but it is, there's definitely that huge disconnect. And I see it every day because of the hundreds of clients that I see every year. But Okay, so my uh, I'm not no longer hanging on to that dream officially as of now. Thank you, Dr. Bush. I would continue to encourage you to go down that avenue. I think, you know, you, to be a reformer, uh, it cannot be done from one avenue, right? So mm -hmm. uh, reformation and transformation of this industry is going to take stakeholders from every perspective. Uh, you know, PhDs, MDs, yes, but really it's going to be, you know, systems engineers, agriculture engineers, farmers themselves, and ultimately the consumer themselves that becomes aware and educated. And I think that uh, you have the luxury as a PhD to not be mired in some of the political, you know, presumptions about the MD world. Yeah. Um, in the medical doctor world, um, we have shown horrible track record of showing respect and interest and, and 
sense of collaboration or co-creation with our other, you know, our other partners out there, the chiropractors, the naturopaths, the DOs, the, the true osteopaths, mm-hmm. you know, we, we just like really are, have missed the boat on collaboration and have been so eager for the hubris of that medical doctor kind of status that it's really, you know, neutered any, you know, real impact that we've had on the sense of what it is to be human than what it is to be human and healthy and all that. And so we're, we're very much in need of a 360 multidisciplinary team and you would certainly 100%. fit that niche. So keep up that good work. Yeah, I'm two years into my PhD and um, putting together a pilot clinical trial that we're going to be designing with actually a physician that um, I had the opportunity to meet who managed and approved a lot of the clinical trials for Canada. And so he, you know, came to the awareness that food is medicine when he retired. And when he healed himself of psoriasis, and then he started to share that information with his colleagues. And of course, doesn't matter that they were friends for 30 years. They all turned around and they're like, you're a quack buddy. Like they think he's out to lunch and is losing his marbles as a result of, you know, really going down this route. But hopefully it doesn't stop him. And I mean, he's, you know, read, he's soaking up so much research now and he's going to be a force to be reckoned with because he's got like another good 40 years in him. So super excited to um, put this pilot clinical trial together and really focusing on type 2 diabetes and, um, and uh, pre-settler or pre-contact food in Indigenous communities um, and using that as a way to uh, lower depression rates and reverse type 2 diabetes. So anyway, that's, um, yeah, that's a whole other story. So yeah, I'm definitely going down that route. So one thing I want to, not that I want to move away from the dis- this discussion because it actually is so fascinating. We can chat for the whole hour and a half about how do we change the system and, um, you know, change medical schools and change insurance policies and, you know, everything. But I want to touch on Farmer's Footprint. That's the documentary that is out now. I haven't had the chance to see it, but I've watched the trailers and they're amazing. So tell us about this documentary film that you've made um, and what it's about. And I'd love to hear some of the highlights that um, came forth when you were obviously behind the scenes and, you know, gathering footage and some of the conversations that you've had with some of these amazing farmers that are out there. Awesome. Farmers Footprint is our first um, public health campaign coming out of a new nonprofit that I've launched in the last uh, two months here. And Farmers Footprint has the docu-series. It's a series of 20 to 30 minute movies that we're producing um, on the farms around the country and around North America and ultimately abroad that are making this really difficult um, and exciting leap from chemical farming to not organic because we one of the things we'll touch on briefly is there's some huge limitations to soil management and organic farming, um, but instead to a status of regenerative farming where this the farms actually produce more soil than they use every year. And that's a really uh, unique distinction that has not really existed on scale yet. And so we have set a goal of 5 million acres in North America um, that would be under you know this regenerative process by 2025. And in so doing, it's going to have a massive impact on everything from the quality of our food uh, to the quality of the the freshwater uh, systems that flow off of those farms, the Mississippi River being the largest, to the ocean itself. We've created a dead zone in the ocean that's expanding quickly. It's well larger than the state of Rhode Island now is this dead zone. And so we can you explain the dead zone a little bit more for people because I think that they may not understand actually what that means. It's coming out of the current practices of chemical farming, which is, of course, very intensive on herbicides and pesticides. We're using chemicals to kill weeds and pests. And in so doing, uh, the 
you know, most abundant of these among them is glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup, which is, of course, the primary treatment for crops that are Roundup ready or genetically modified. And those GMO crops that now account for 85% of the, the corn, 95% uh, of the soybean, uh, of the vast majority of the alfalfa, canola, go on down the list. Um, now, more recently, our salmon. And so this genetic modification allows these organisms to handle higher levels of toxin, which means that they don't die in face of toxin, but it means they carry that toxin with them to humans and any other animal, including our pets and our livestock that are then fed that material. And so then the livestock, our pets and our own health suffer radically as we can start to consume these chemicals that are literally drenching the crops that we now uh, consider our staple crops. Uh, wheat being a profound example of this. We didn't really have a gluten sensitivity epidemic until the mid 1990s. We started spraying wheat in 1992. Uh, the speed at which this uh, rate of gluten sensitivity and celiac disease is the autoimmune disease behind that uh, really took off as, as we continued every year to spray more and more acres of wheat with Roundup. And so that practice, you know, predated even the GMOs of the corn, the soybean, and the rest, uh, which all debuted in 1996. And so we, we've seen only, you know, two to three decades of this massive herbicide pesticide load. Interestingly, that main, uh, that main ingredient of Roundup being glyphosate has never been patented as a weed killer. Instead, it's been patented as an antimicrobial, impacting bacteria, fungi, parasites, uh, viruses, earthworms, a single application of, of Roundup on a, on a farmer's field has been shown to kill half the earthworms. And so it's just decimating life within the soil. And with dead soil, you then have to start expensive inputs. And so you have to start putting more and more chemical fertilizers, petroleum-based fertilizers, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium into that soil, which of course makes for a very expensive and even tighter margin uh, of farming. But unfortunately, those become their own toxin in the waterways as they wash off. Too much nitrogen in a dead water system that's been wiped out with Roundup is the perfect storm where now the only thing that can live is these green algaes and red algae blooms that are trying to detoxify these dead water zones. Then we blame the algae and we move in with more pesticides and toxins to try to kill the algae when really the algae is there because we killed the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And it's our first step towards health again. It's, it's there to try to recover some level of oxygenation of the water so that other life could return. And we just treat it like it's this noxious weed. And we do the same thing on our farms. The weeds are always on a farm on purpose. They show up in the soil to, to liberate or to neutral, uh, liberate uh, nutrients for the soil or to uh, neutralize toxins in the soil. And when we see a weed, we immediately go and spray it with more weed killer, thinking that it's our enemy. Uh, we do the same thing in medicine. As soon as uh, you see Staph aureus in a wound, we say, oh, that's infected. And we start killing it with more antibiotics. The only reason there was a resistant Staph aureus in the wound was because there was too much antibiotic pressure on that microbiome to begin with. So we keep treating the symptoms of our own chemical environment with more chemical and wondering why health is declining in hospitals and farms across the country. Every hospital is now rampant with C. diff colitis, C. difficile being a resistant mm -hmm. form of clostridium, uh, E. coli strains, MRSA, which is a methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, BRE, which is a vancomycin-resistant enterococcus. These are just become these, you know, nearly impossible to eradicate 
infectious processes. But if we back up, these are inevitably the few bugs left that can start to try to rebuild a little bit of ecosystem within these toxic environments of our bodies and hospitals. And so uh, we have to stop killing the weeds and we have to start whelping them into the system as part of the harbinger for the return to health and understand how to make their, their presence less needed by improving the microbiome so that E. coli or fungi or algae blooms in the ocean don't have to be there. And so we need to embrace the process of repair and recovery, not continue to hamper its progress. So um, I see that the farmers are in the same place as a lot of physicians who are coming to the realization that, wait a minute, the way we've been doing it for the last, you know, however long is not necessarily the right way. There's a different way, but I think they're also feeling handcuffed in the system as well, um, which is why we see a lot of these, you know, farmer suicides. And, um, and what are we going to do about that? So we talked about the physicians and what they can do, right? You know, they can join your new... So fun. I mean, and you're going to see these parallels run so deep between these two populations. The solutions for the farmers look exactly like the solutions for the physicians. Okay. The farmers are desperate for a new education environment. So the nonprofit that I've been assembling is not for a documentary series. The documentary series is simply our, our hook for education for the community and farmers alike. Behind that is basically a new academia for for farmers. We are assembling all of the trainers that they need to understand how to rapidly, and I'm talking within months, transition their farms that have been under chemical farming for decades or two generations to get those transition not to organic where they were in the 1970s, but to actually get them to regenerative where they've never been. And we can do that within two or three crop cycles uh, to get a, a regenerative soil process underway is very short time frame. And their profits on the back end are so much greater than they are when they're under the chemical model. And they really become creative again. And that's my greatest joy is watching these farmers get creative with their, their land that they hold. Uh, 3,000 acres creatively managed can have six to 10 different revenue streams. Yeah. 3,000 acres under, under conventional farming grows one crop a year, maybe two. And so they have very limited variety of revenue streams, which means they're extremely vulnerable to yeah. collapses of the economy, changes in commodities prices, changes in the weather patterns, collapse of a crop because it got too cold too fast or too hot too fast or too dry too long. And then their one crop fails and then they are bankrupt and, and they lose the family farm that's been there for five generations. That's why they're committing suicide. Yeah. I think that that is the most intense pressure I've ever seen in my life. Watching a farmer whose father and mother still live on the farm, watching this farmer in his 30s and 40s realizing that he's going to lose the family farm that's been in the, in the family for five generations. Talk about a, a first child, you know, under collapse of the psyche. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the male psyche cannot handle that level of sense of failure, that level of sense of, of you know, disappointment uh, to the generations ahead. And so I think that's where the suicide gets intense. But unfortunately, it's not limited to the, the family pressures. It's really the community at large that puts the, the biggest force upon these farmers. Once you decide you're going to go into a non-chemical form of farming, you've Im immediately passed judgment on all of your neighbors that now feel like you're telling them that they're growing a toxic food chain. Well, whether they are or not, doesn't matter. The issue is they feel condemned by you. They feel judged by you okay. when all you really did was say, I'm going to go to do this. And, but they just feel the judgment. So they retaliate then with animosity and they kick you out of the, 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 
the Boy Scout troop and now you're on your own. And, you know, we have farmers that have been, uh, you know, doing regenerative ag for decades. And still, if they walk into the local bar or lo local agricultural extension, there will be a, a calendar literally on the wall with their name on it that says, when will he go out of business? And, they're, and they've got bets, you know, even years in that this guy's going to go out of business because he stepped out of line with the, the status quo. And so that level of animosity shocked me when I got out there shooting this film series. I, I could not even even imagined that these communities could turn turn on each other so quickly over this issue of, of going to a, a, a non-chemical form of agriculture. So I think that in the end, the technological leaps and, and the education is tiny compared to the community transformation that we need around these farmers to get this revolution underway. And so not only are we creating that university, we're really creating a new marketplace of ideas and connection to community through get, letting the consumer touch the farmer again. And to, for too long now, we've put too many middlemen between consumers and farmers. And, mm -hmm. and by so doing, we completely lost the potency and sense of purpose of the farmer. And we lost the potency of, and awareness of the consumer. The consumer has no idea how freaking toxic these farms are. If they did, they would never buy a strawberry from these farms. Um, and so in, on both sides of the equation, it was the middlemen that allowed for this loss of information, this loss of connection. Say, I would say the same thing in medicine. Between you and your doctor is a hospital system, an insurance, national insurance model, a, a U.S. government that's that's created a false economy around that healthcare delivery through Medicare and Medicaid. We've got uh, you know pharmaceutical uh, drug makers that are manipulating the the cost points and uh, consumer behavior that are allowed to then make commercials on on the TV that sell you on a blood pressure medicine that's never been shown to be safe or sell you on a vaccine that's never been shown to be effective. And you know all of this stuff comes pumping through the TV at you. And that's why we have a broken healthcare system. Too many middlemen, too many third parties manipulating the relationship between a care provider and their patient. We have a vision for healthcare through Powered by M of rejoining the physician with the consumer. We have a vision through Farmer's Footprint and our non nonprofit to reignite and reunite the relationship between consumer and farmers. And I guarantee you, I've never met a mother that didn't want to feed her children extremely healthy, nutrient-dense foods. And I've never met a farmer that didn't want to grow extremely dense, nutrient, life-giving food. And so we are on the same team. and We need to come to that realization and then maybe ask some difficult questions. If we're on the same team, who wasn't on our team when all this stuff went south? And in the end, it was a bunch of corporations that were more concerned about their bottom line than the, the health of the consumer or their farmers. And so that's the model. And I think that that excites me that the solution is human relationship. Where it broke down was human relationship. And so I can debate all day long with scientists and doctors as to whether they really are going to believe me that, that Roundup is at the, at the root cause of our disease epidemics. That's a waste of my breath on some level because I already know the solution. And it has nothing to do with that, that medical scientist. It has to do with the consumer being connected back to their opportunity for health. Yeah, and I love that you touched on that uh, at the end of the day. I mean, really, it truly all comes back to community as well. And we need to feel that connection to another human being or an animal or nature or whatever it is. And um, when people often ask me, they're, you know, because they're skeptical, skeptical about organic food, they're skeptical about, you know, food as medicine, they're skeptical about the drugs that their doctors prescribe. I mean, everybody's skeptical. 
And we get it. We have access to the internet. We can Google anything. Most people don't realize that if they're going to start Googling, I would suggest going to Google Scholar and just maybe diving a little bit deeper into some of the research, even though, you know, that's a whole nother discussion about how we do science. And, you know, at the end of the day, when we're trying to change big systems, like, you know, whether it's government or um, you know, policy that, you know, they want to go back to the science and they, and it's so easy to find, um, any sort of science to prove that you're right or to prove that the other person's wrong. And, um, you know, and that's just the way that, you know, we design these studies and there's so much bias and, you know, confirmation bias is something that we're all susceptible as well. So we don't often want to look at the research. So when, you know, my clients say, well, what kind of food do I buy? And I'm like, buy the food from the farmer that you can hug. If you can go to their farm, walk their land, touch their soil, see them working in their fields, go out there and, and they want to give you a hug, that's the farmer that you want to buy from. And the same thing with your physician. You know, what physician do I go see? Go to the physician that's actually going to hug you because when they hug you, they put the computer aside, they actually touch you, they feel your skin, they can tell if it's clammy, they can tell if you have a fever, they can tell, you know, um, you know, there's so many things that doctors used to be able to, like prior to the 70s when they actually used to touch and feel the patient but now, like you say, you know, you have to look at what's between, you know, the physician and you. And often it is that computer that's attached to, you know, that document that's needed for the, you know, insurance company and so on and so on. And so if you can get that doctor to, you know, the one who wants to touch you and hug you, um, then you're probably in a good place and you can start forming a really good relationship. Um, and I want to touch more, go back to the um, depression and the mental health um, piece. And just I want to tell one story about this one doctor who his daughter was diagnosed with cancer. And before that, he used to say things like there's no relationship between food and the body. And before that, he used to say things like you don't look like you have cancer. You're not gray. He would just say, so I'm not going to run any tests for you for, you know, checking to see even though the, you know, patients would um, often say like, I have all of these symptoms that sound like there, you know, could be cancer, but he wouldn't want to run the tests. Um, but after when his own daughter was diagnosed, it, you know, something shifted. He started looking at the research differently. And I remember bringing one of my clients, I sometimes accompany my clients to their doctor's office because they need somebody who could speak up for them. They need someone to advocate for them and ask the right questions. And uh, this particular client, she had panic attacks, anxiety, cervical cancer, um, depression to the point of being suicidal. And we went in there and sat her down and the, you know, and he looked at her and he's just like, tell me what you need. And he reached across the table and he just touched her hand and held her hand. And she was in the middle of having a panic attack and the panic attack just stopped. And that's all he did. He just held space for her. And it was the most beautiful interaction that I've ever witnessed between a doctor and the patient. And, and he said, you know what, we are going to do whatever it takes to support you through this next year of, you know, tests and treatments and absolutely everything. Anyway, she's been depression free cancer-free, um, panic attack-free, anxiety-free ever since. Um, and I mean, she changed her diet. She did a lot of things. She got proactive, but that's the kind of relationship that I think you're talking about that we need between our father, or our farmers and um, our physicians. And going back to this topic of depression, and we see that, you know, 90% of the dopamine and serotonin is created in this microbiome. There's one thing that you mentioned in the last podcast, and I've had so many people write to me about this. It's where you said, um, in the last podcast with um, Ritual, and where you mentioned that we have about 70 years. And you also mentioned that um, by 2030, we should expect to see what one in three kids being born with autism can you talk about that a little bit? Because 
When I was at this one um, policy meeting looking at the Canadian Food Guide, um, there was a bunch of farmers that showed up as well because everybody was giving their input on food. And, you know, we talked about the need for we need some, you know, chemical free farming, soil regenerative farming practices happening. Like if you're going to create a food guide, you got to talk about where the food's grown as well. And this one farmer, she was, you know, probably in her 70s. She's been doing this her whole entire life. And she just got up and started crying. And then she was angry. And then she turned around and started pointing her finger at me and, you know, and my heart went out to her because I get where she's from. But she said, it's because of us. We're the ones who are using the genetically modified food because we are feeding the population, this overpopulated planet. And, um, and, you know, it was in that moment that I realized, okay, we have this like deep need for education with the farmers, but it was those two comments that you mentioned in the podcast that made me realize if these are the kinds of conversations and the kind of information, you know, that farmers could hear, maybe she wouldn't have had such a emotional reaction, you know, because at the end of the day, one in three kids really being born with autism and the fact that if we don't regenerate our soil and bring back that microbiome, you know, you're saying that potentially we have, what, 70 years of good life, you know, on earth. And there was a lot of people who were depressed by that podcast, I do have to say, like, they couldn't even get past that. So if you can speak to those two... If you, if you, because you may have gotten depressed and didn't catch the last 10 minutes, but the yeah. last 10 minutes is that. No, the last 10 minutes, the whole podcast is amazing and enlightening, yeah, exactly. and you go to a happy place at the end. But yeah, if you can chat I on that. Bring you back to, to some hope through that last 10 minutes. But um, I, yeah, they are depressing numbers on one hand. Um, you know, I think, you know, I don't think there's a lot of, you know, obviously this is looking forward at the trajectory of a human species, and we can't measure the variables very well 50 years from now. Uh, we have may have nowhere near 70 years left. It could be far shorter than that because we don't know at which point our, our logarithmic, you know, rate of destruction that we're having on the planet right now tips us into a catastrophic endpoint before we could even predict it. Um, a good example is the bees. You know, if we suddenly lost honeybees, that 70 years suddenly becomes three to five years. You know, it's right. like so fast that with that, that timeline could shift shorter. How could we make it longer? Well, you know, the regenerative ag, you know, re revolution that is afoot. And it, it's it's really in the last six months that this has gone viral around the world. And so the timing of our nonprofit just couldn't have been better than that. And everybody's suddenly aware that, oh, my God, organic's not enough. We got to go beyond that. We actually have to start, you know, building soil instead of just spraying less chemicals. And so in that journey to find out, you know, one of the devastating things we found out shooting this documentary is that the soil quality on most of our organic agricultural land is worse than our chemical land. That was stunning to me. I, I really and thought why they were is that, do you think? And the reason for that are a couple, but one of the major problems is that they overtill. Yeah. So when you overtill or plow the land, you destroy the infrastructure of the soil. You, you kill the fungal and, and mycorrhizae and earthworms and everything else through overtilling. And so you leave the ground more deplete there, but then you also leave it bare without any cover crop on top of it all winter. The, the soil freezes and has a uh, poor oxygenation, so it's starving over the course of the winter. It has very poor ability to absorb water, and so when the rains come, it washes and silts the soil out, meaning that it loses its its volume. Uh, we are currently losing 11% of our gross domestic product uh, amount of money for 11% of our GDP in, the, in soil every year in this country. Uh, that is our single biggest loss as a nation as far as assets go. And so 11% of GDP being flushed out uh, down our rivers into the oceans to kill the oceans ultimately 
is is a stunning fact, and that's all being done, you know, on organic farms is as bad, if not worse, than on our chemical farms. So we need a complete revolution of the education system. Organic is not nearly enough of a big jump. <coughs> I agree. And so, what we see here is now the opportunity to change that sixty or seventy years in ways that we can't really anticipate. What's it going to look like when we get five million acres? Uh, to, to region of ag. What's it going to look like when we hit 50 million? What's it going to look like when we finally hit a billion acres worldwide of regenerative agriculture? The amount of carbon dioxide that we return into the ecosystem of, of plant life is so dramatic just with 5 million acres. When you extrapolate that out, there's going to be no such thing as man-made contributions to global warming under a billion acres of regenerative soil. It's literally impossible to hurt the world because that that soil is so intelligent in its ability to reabsorb the toxins that we produce. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that's, you know, that's the hopeful silver lining is we've never done it before. And so we can't imagine how good it could get. And I am convinced that it could get really freaking good around this planet in the next 250 years. Mm -hmm. If we are regenerative in our mindset and co-create with mother nature, instead of being conflict and exploitation of her. And so that's the journey that we have ahead of us. Is are, are we even going to make it to 70 years? I'd say the jury's out. 70 years is based on our reproductive capacity as a, as a species. And so right now we've experienced a 50% drop in sperm levels across all males in this country over just one generation. And so a generation lasts about 22, 23 years. And so with each generation, you fast forward another 22 years. If we have another 50% drop in sperm levels, now we've got somewhere around one in two males uh, unable to, to, and then you do that again, and, and you do it three more times, you know, three more generations to hit that 70-year mark, and you realize we just don't have enough procreative force to even make another child. And so when you say we might only have 60 or 70 years of beautiful life left, we might only have 60 or 70 years of horrendous suffering and death ahead of us. And so mm -hmm. it, I wish it was as good as like, yeah, it's going to be just fine. And then it's going to drop. I think we're going to see the most catastrophic levels of what, you know, human suffering and loss of life on the planet. And of course, it's not limited to humans. Right now, we're losing an estimated one species to extinction every 20 minutes, yeah. round the clock, 365 days a year. And so it's just a matter of time before our species becomes one in, in that gauntlet of disappearing species on this planet as we erode the very matrix of life through our incapacity to work with Mother Nature. And that's it. We just we keep disrupting her natural cycles of oxygen, water, soil, carbon, etc. And when we lice those through all of our things from transportation to energy to uh, medicine and farming, we, we are going to kill life on this planet but the planet will outlast us. The best thing that we could do for Mother Earth right now is go extinct. It's the most important thing for the survival of the planet is the extinction of humans. Once we go extinct, the entire ecosystem is gonna recover. By current you know, estimates, I would say that we probably have three to four million years before we see uh, life back to its, its potential from before when we showed up. We showed up 180,000 years ago, and I think there's millions of years to recover from our 180,000 years. Um, but the Mother Earth will inevitably recover because it's a closed system. Every molecule that was ever on Earth before our species showed up is still here. It's a closed system. We are, live in a vacuum. This ball is solely, fully self-contained. The only input that we have from the outside universe is electrons flowing in from solar flares and stars in distant places. We're a closed loop. Every, every drop of oxygen and water and everything else is ultimately here still. Right now, it's so contaminated, it's a hard time so 
supporting life. But when we leave, the microbiome will take back over. The algae will clean up the oceans. We will have a normal life cycle back. The water will regenerate itself. It has survived many things as catastrophic as humanity. This is, this is the sixth great extinction. First extinction that's maybe due to one of her species' own activities. But it's the sixth great extinction that we've seen on the planet, the last one being 55 million years ago. And so maybe we're just on track for the inevitable every 55, 60 million years ago, we need to reboot as a planet and we'll, we'll disappear with the dinosaurs. And inevitably there will be intelligence on this planet again. The level of intelligence of the microbiome itself is far underestimated right now. And we're just starting to get a, a sense of the extreme intelligence, which is drive for life force uh, and real nurture in the microbiome and its care for itself and its, its diversity of ecosystem. And so ultimately that 67 year number, you know, 70 years left of human life due to our reproductive patterns that was data coming out of MIT and other universities doing just mathematical modeling. That I was arguing, I was lecturing on that for a couple of years, you know, out on the stump, just telling doctors, look, wake up. We got, we got this 70 years left. One in three children with autism is around 2035, 2040, depending on when you cut the numbers. But it, it doesn't matter when in that decade we hit one in three children with autism. That's that one disease is going to cripple our economy. There's no way we have enough money to support that level of neurologic injury in our children. One little caveat, as you mentioned, one in three children will be born with autism. Children really aren't born with autism. Is the interesting thing is they have to live in this toxic environment for at least a few months. Usually around 12 to 18 months is when we start to see those signs of of autism emerging. Typically, the children are on normal developmental trajectory. They can speak. They can make eye contact, and then a week after a high fever and some other events, they can't talk and they're suddenly you know, autistic. And so they lived long enough to have the neurologic injury. And now they're on a, a decades long journey back towards struggling towards health with very few resources. We just have not been put our resources into developing good tools for these autistic kids. Thank God for the heroes among us who have you know, made their whole lives and careers about creating pathways for those kids, but they're too few and far between. Mm-hmm. And they're all unfunded. You know, it's moms that are scraping together funds uh, to get these these revolutionary ideas into play and out to the public. The physicians and the physician community, NIH has got, that the NIH has no sector to support autism right now is mind-blowing to me. Yeah, uh, seriously, you have like National Center for Chronic Kidney Disease, which you don't care about the kids with autism. You can't see that the, the burden of autism is going to far outweigh the burden of kidney disease in this country in the next five to 20 years. Uh, you know, wake up, you know, national government. But, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, that we aren't putting our resources to this. So, yes, I think we are going to collapse as, an, as a country. I don't think the United States is going to be a superpower in 15 years because we're going to be so mired in our own disease processes. Well, if 70% of our adults with cancer by that time, we're going to have, you know, all this stuff. And these numbers aren't even theoretical anymore. We just hit one in two adults with cancer. Like, yeah. hello. Like, <laughs> this is not rocket science anymore. This is not a theoretical argument of, of you know, esoteric you know trajectories of, of disease but it all shifted yet again for me when last year in february i was shooting in the middle of winter at devastatingly cold temperatures up in, in minnesota the weather has been extremely erratic in the northern united states over the last seven years extreme cold extremely high winds wind chills of minus 50 with no snow coverage on the soil literally bare black soil in minus 50 degree. What's happening to that ecosystem of that soil? It is so dead by spring because everything has been frozen solid because it never had the insulation of the snow. 
Right. Global warming doesn't mean everything just gets warmer. It means that we get these extreme, weird, erratic patterns where there's no snow and extreme cold, no snow and extreme wind, huge snow and flooding, which then silts this this topsoil that can, can't have any architecture, and so it all just rushes down the rivers in the street in the spring. We are devastating this, and the farmers in the midst of that frozen north told me that we only have 60 harvests left on the planet. And it just stopped me in my tracks. I was like, wait, you guys have figured out that there's only 60 seasons left? And MIT and the rest of us have figured out there's only 70 seasons left of humanity? That's strikingly similar number. Yeah. You know, that was super reinforcing mindset suddenly of, wow, this isn't a theoretical you know, trajectory of human health and survival. This is literally the trajectory of biology yeah. on planet Earth. It will be gone as we know it today in 60 to 70 years. That means my children born 2000, 1998, will be the last children to even come close to their, their adult life you know, expectancy, even as pathetic as our life expectancy is in this country. 78 should not be a lifespan. We know we should leave, live to 120. We've never lived to our full potential. Exactly. And so either we're gonna wink out in a, in a moment's time and it is a moment. We've been here 180,000 years. 60 years is a pathetically small amount. I don't care if we're off by a factor of three. 180 years compared to 180,000 years. We are at the last couple breaths of our species. What are we going to do with that? And this would be super depressing right now if I didn't have the opportunity to tell you this next part, which again, 10 minutes of the Red Roll podcast, you can see this in other words. But I want to tell you that the moment of death, there is an expansion. The moment of death is not an endpoint. As a hospice doctor, my greatest joy is being at the bedside when somebody leaves the body. As a species, we're now on our deathbed. And we will expand. And so if we need to go extinct so that we can have that death moment of that rebirth into transformative awareness and, and expand into that as a species so that perhaps, but in every way, energy moves on. We know energy cannot be destroyed. And we know that energy on planet Earth is a closed loop. So whatever form that energy takes place, as long as it went through an expansion and a moment of, of clarity, of connection, and unity, and oneness, and singularity with the universe, let alone all the other life on this planet, perhaps whatever energy comes out of this species as we go extinct will transform into something much more life-giving and less in conflict with the Mother Nature that we're born within. I am someone who's okay with death. I just think it's an amazing um, transition that we take. And because we don't necessarily know what's on the other side, to me, it's just another adventure. And I too have been beside many a person who has been transitioning. Um, often when they came to me when it was, you know, their disease was so advanced that, you know, there really wasn't any intervention. Um that we knew of that could, you know, that they can tap into. So I think I, and I completely agree with you. I'm like, let's bring it on. Let's get to that point when we can actually rethink and, you know, jump into, you know, the world that a lot of the sci-fi books describe, like sci-fi books, they were written 100 years ago, and they describe this incredible planet where everybody was in harmony and where we can breathe underwater and where, you know, the, the oceans were clean after they'd become toxic and the species regenerated. So 
I'm all good with that. But I know there's going to be a lot of listeners who are deathly terrified. And I'm hoping that, you know, what you said um, will be that kick in the ass that they need to, you know, start putting into place these systems, like no-till farming, regenerative soil practices, um, because we can do it. And what I want to know and I'm sure what they want to know, because it's going to be scary, um, definitely a lot of these listeners are going to be like, okay, okay, Dr. Bush, I'm ready. Okay, Nicolette, I'm ready. Like, I'm willing to do it now. I'm convinced. So what does it look like for them to, like, actually start adopting these practices? You know, like, how much money do they need? Like, what is it that they have to do? Because a lot of these farmers don't have money. And I've seen it when we just bought, we almost lost our house last year. It's one acre of gorgeous farmland in one of the most nutrient um rich zones on the planet. Pemberton, British Columbia is known for growing some of the most amazing food. Um, But banks all across Canada stopped funding and giving mortgages to farmland five acres and less. And it's those those farms that are five acres and less that can grow so much food and do it in a sustainable way because they have to. And they weren't going to give us funding. And we'd already put down our down payment. We'd already taken out a line of credit, like 9%, thinking we'll just transition into a mortgage once we filed our business taxes. And all the banks across Canada said, nope, we just don't fund mortgages for farmland. So as I was looking, you know, online to think like, what are we going to do? Do we like sell this piece of land? Um, I started seeing a lot of ads in the paper from farmers who had had their farms for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, some of them for like 150 years. And they were saying things on like Craigslist and the buy and sell, you know, saying like, I can't grow a stitch of food on this land. So they couldn't sell their farmland at all. And this is happening across Canada where there's like hundreds of acres of land that people cannot sell because nobody can grow anything. But if those farmers could know that they can invest and you're going to tell us like what that's going to look like, what kind of effort is needed, what kind of money is needed, um, how do we transition these farms quickly? This is the most awesome news. So all you need is education. Our nonprofit has really got this goal of bringing consumer support to that education so that we can subsidize your education as farmers. And really all you need to know is is the information the very very cool thing about this design of the universe is it doesn't cost any money uh, mother nature is free all the time and mother nature is well ahead of your chemical companies in understanding biology mother nature has been working on the development of biology for billions of years and your chemical farmers have been or chemical companies that are supplying you have been working to destroy that just for a couple of decades. And so stop trusting the, 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 the promise of the chemical companies and start trusting that depth of Mother Nature. And it's mind boggling the speed of repair. And so we have seen many farms that are not able to grow a stitch of, of anything but weeds on their land because they've so depleted the soils through the very practices that their banks and chemical companies are so eager to tell them they have to do to be able to grow food. And so then they start growing, you know, you know this, this chemically intense output input model and there's no money to be had. And so that's why they're in financial straits to begin with, not to mention that they can't grow any food anymore. You now turn that over to mother nature. And if you work with her, the cost is stunningly cheap. A good 30 species, and 16 is a good starting point. If you can find 16 species cover crop, but if you can move it up to that 24 to 30 species cover crop, it'll only cost you a few hundred dollars of seed to, to get your, your thousand acres under, under your 16, 30 species of intelligence. In that one growing season, you will then nutrify the soil better than it's been nutrified in two decades in one year. 
And then you're going to manage that that that's uh, cover crop instead of trying to just spray it at the end of the season to kill it. You're instead going to use it as your best asset going forward. Uh, roller cripper technology is our favorite technique for farmers who don't have any cattle or livestock to help them. Uh, a roller crimper technology, uh, it, we're underway of helping, you know, support this transition for Canadian farmers too, to better roller crimper techniques for your cover crops up north where you get shorter cover crops. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you're going to have to do right now until we get that redesigned is you're probably going to have to roll in two directions, um, either 90 degrees from each other or 180 degrees, depending on your, your traffic uh, patterns on your farm with the tractors. But you're, you'll get that roll done. And what you've now done is you've laid down about 80% uh, of your cover crop and about 10 to 15, 20% will, will spring back up behind the roller crimper and provide some continued photosynthesis for the soil. While the 80% supplies a armor on top of the soil to protect it from the adversity of the weather. And it also provides a constant input of nutrients over the next nine months as a free source of, so we're talking about a few hundred dollars of cover crop one device, which is a roller crimper, which is about five times cheaper than a combine. You're looking at maximum in that kind of fifty to $100,000 for a massive roller crimper for your really large-scale 40,000-acre farms. If you're a small-scale farm, you can get a roller crimper for four or five grand. And so for pennies on the dollar of what you're spending on inputs right now, you're going to get cover crops and you're going to start roller crimping. If you happen to have some cattle on your land, now it's even easier. Now you just start doing high-intensity grazing. You're moving your cattle in small electric fence pens that you can wire up with a four-wheeler in a matter of minutes, and you move that that herd every six hours or so, washing your crop lay down. And once it's laid down to about that 85% level, then you move them again. So every day you may be moving your cattle to, in extreme examples, three times, and then they're composting and enriching the soil on top of that, and they'll even have a faster impact than the roller crimper. And so whether you have cattle or don't, you now have the tools at hand. Then you're gonna get the education around washing and learning from your weeds. Your weeds are your best asset. We've, we're working with Soil Health Academy who've renamed the weeds to the forbs. The forbs are the most intelligent part of the soil, and they are helping identify for you where the weak points are in your area, and you're gonna bring cattle or the livestock in to support the roller crimper, or you can do other things in those next two growing seasons to make sure that the weeds are turning over. When you allow a weed to do its work, it's not going to be back next year. It didn't need to be because it did its work already. It'll be a different weed or forb that'll show up the following year to do some new work on the healing journey to your soil. Your journey towards a profitable piece of land from dead land is at most three to five years. Most of our farmers will recognize an improvement in output in a single season of appropriate soil management. The key is you stop plowing and and tilling the land. That is so opposite of what all the farmers have been taught. In fact, fascinating to me is if you go back to the beginning of Western civilization, the very first invention, the plow. And so it was with our first movement to civilization that we completely destroyed the infrastructure for life on Earth. And it's been the scaling of that technology that has undermined everything. It's created global warming, it's created the collapse of human health, the great extinction that we see right now. It's taking us to the brink of life itself on this planet is the freaking plow. And so it's so simple to stop plowing. It's easier than even stopping spraying. And so it's a very empowering moment to say, you need to spend almost nothing. You need to do nothing but start to be a grateful observer of your land. And if you will observe Mother Earth's work, 
on your land and stay out of the way and do no harm for two seasons, learn and be richened by that to find out that you aren't being called to work your land. You're being called to be a witness to your land. You're being called to love your land. You're being called to tell us as consumers who haven't touched the freaking soil in two generations, tell us to come out to your farm and experience mother nature's beauty on the farms that are doing this within two seasons they see 16 to 30 species of birds when it's been 15 years since they've heard a bird on their land the species want it they are there to to come back and forgive you you will have earthworms to beat the band in just one season of no tilling it's going to be an explosion of biology around you farmer with one acre to, to forty thousand acres it is right there under your feet. The solution is right at hand. It is called nature, and you are not called to disrupt it anymore. You're called to just love it and be loved by it, and I think you just are going to blow your mind over the ease of it. Farmers across the world who are making this tenants, this, this transition are just in shock because two years, three years later, they take their very first vacation they've had as an adult. These farmers literally have not taken vacation in their adult lifespan because they thought they had to work the land every day because they were taught that to be a farmer is to wake up and decide what you have to kill today. And so they go out and kill that weed or they kill that pest or they kill that weed or that pest or they have to give them inputs. And so they are in this constant chasing, trying to reinvent biology itself with the most cautry, pitiful selection of tools you can imagine and they are failing for it. And no wonder, because they are not the force of nature. They are supposed to get out of the way of the force of nature. And so I, I can't even express to you how joyful I am about the, the, the cost benefit here. It costs zero to do the right thing. And there's so much money on the other side to be had once Mother Nature pours through you. Farmers are going from $40 an acre net yield on chemical farming to $400 to $500 an acre in just three years. A tenfold improvement in income in three to five years is unbelievable. And and so it's just, it, it really is all, all sitting there in front of us. Our solutions are right at hand, and I thank God Mother Earth heals faster than we kill it. Because I can tell you right now that if we all do the right thing in the farming industry, our, our medical industry doesn't even have to do it right. Exactly. They can continue to be just as stupid and backwood, you know, intellectually, and they won't have a problem to even screw up yeah. because the kids, kids are going to be healthy. Yeah. And when we grow healthy kids, the doctors will go out of business, thank God. And so let's let's make that reality the choice. The, the revolution is going to happen in the soil, not in our healthcare system. Wow. I could probably chat with you for another three hours, but I know you have to be somewhere in about eight minutes. And I think you left that on an incredible note, um, which really you know, everything you were saying reminded me of what happened during the um, Cuba crisis when they couldn't get any fossil fuels into, you know, that country in the 70s. And that's what they did. They returned to regenerative soil practices, to community farming practices, um, growing food together, um, feeding each other. And it's in pretty incredible. One of my professors, he lived in Cuba for about six or seven years studying everything that happened during that time. And he said it was quite remarkable because not one person um, died from starvation during that time when really that's what they thought would happen when they couldn't get any fertilizers. In. And they started making their own comb posts. They started, you know, taking care and not plowing the, the fields at that time. They were doing everything by hand. They were, you know, having cover crops, everything. So you just reminded me about this. And that's another incredible documentary that um, probably about 20 years old now that um, definitely a lot of farmers could watch. So that they know... 
I need to catch one point in there because you mentioned earlier, I forgot to come back to it, is that woman who stood up in anger and said, but we have to use the chemicals because we're feeding the world. That is actually another thing we discovered on the trail of the, of the farms is, of course, the United States and its farmers under chemical agriculture are not feeding any of the world. Yeah. If you go to the grocery store, look at where all of our food is coming from. We don't even grow our own food in this country, let alone feed the world. Exactly. All of our crops are pouring into our cattle and gas tanks. Literally, the vast majority of the commodity crops we grow, corn, soybean, and the rest, is flowing into cattle and poultry and pork, or our gas tanks in the form of ethanol. And there's absolutely not a single tomato or piece of basil or anything else that you would actually cook with coming out of the vast majority of the acreage of our country. And so we're actually exploiting our richest farmlands that could feed the world to, to become these commodity machines for, for, for transportation and big protein production. It turns out that 70% of the planet right now, humans, are being fed by a peasant farmer. 70% of the planet is being fed by a peasant farmer. And so we need to get our heads out of our proverbial ass here and stop believing we're good for the world. Yeah. This, the, North America is not feeding the world. North America is about to be cut off, by the way, from the rest of the world. EU is not willing to keep importing our crap food. Yeah. Germany has refused for a couple of years now to import any food from Canada or the U.S. And instead, they get all their grain from the, Russia and the Ukraine. Are you kidding me? Russia and the Ukraine are doing, yes, they are way cleaner, way better. Yeah. I think Russia is going to actually be the healthiest country on, on, on the planet within the next five, five to ten years. They've decided as a nation they're going to be organic by 2025. We can't even decide what it means to be organic in this country by 2025. We can't even label the chemicals that would, would show us that the food isn't. So we are decades behind Russia. You want a, you want a homeland security plan? Freaking get some good food on in your country. The United States, we just sold Monsanto to Bayer. We just sold 85 to 90% of the ownership of our staple crops in North America to a German privately held entity. That is not homeland security. That, that is complete foolishness. That is complete short-sightedness. That is complete dependence on a profit-driven entity in another foreign country. We don't even own our own seed anymore. We are crazy in North America to have let that gone through. And so we need to hurry up and take back the land. What does that look like? Yes, you're going to see farmers flocking to the farmer's footprint movement to become part of that solution. But I would make a call to all of you that are on right now who are at an acre or less. It is actually our backyard gardens that were feeding 45% of America in 1945 at the end of World War II. 45% of the food chain in our backyard gardens. If you go to Cuba, it was probably more like 80% at the height of their embargo and everything else. So we have this extreme opportunity to feed ourselves, our families, and our loved ones, and our entire communities at large through our backyard gardens. One of a profound example of this is I was started my nutrition clinic in 2010 in rural Virginia, one of the poorest uh, communities in, in the in the state I and mean, really in the country. Uh, the total food desert. Most of the food was consumed out of gas stations, not grocery stores. And so, total food desert, crap processed food, really the sole source. So diabetes, obesity, of course, through the roof, cancer, heart disease, you name it, mostly African-American population, but a lot of you know fifth generation poverty, white uh, Caucasians as well. And so you had this diverse you know, poverty being faced with this food desert, and they're all, of course, dying at such young ages. I had people with end-stage hypertension at age 28 in my clinic. 
had people with had 13 year old kids with sarcomas dying from metastatic cancer. I have nine year old kids with bizarre leukemias that have never been seen in children before. And just the craziest amount of disease. And I walked in there and said, I'm going to start a nutrition clinic and we're going to start to grow our own food. And this huge community of poverty said, hallelujah, we can do that. Yeah. And I had this one African-American pastor who got onto this and was like, wait a second, my grandmother actually used to grow food for the entire community. Over the next three years, he did exactly that. He and his whole family, all of his kids and all of their kids, he is 75 or something when he started this personal journey. By the time he hit 80, they were feeding 40 families out of their backyard garden. That is our potential in our backyards. And so that's what I want you guys to redream on who are listening right now is don't just become a, a supporter to the farmers. We have to do that for the survival of our planet. But even go a step further and become part of that workforce to work with your own hands in your backyard. If you don't have a backyard, then there, I guarantee you there's a CSA or a farmer's market or something, some other way for you to get engaged. Go to the local elementary school and teach a soil class or just be an extra set of helping hands for whoever is teaching that soil class. And I'm totally inspired by what you did back with the envelopes of dirt you know, back in the day. That's, that's, that's how you make an impact right now. Get reconnected. Take your own shoes off and just walk barefoot for a few minutes and see what Mother Earth is going to reveal to you about your purpose and your passion. The fact is, 60, 70 years left, that sucks. Yes, it does. I want grandchildren. I would like to see my great-grandchildren live a full life. My children at 21 have no expectation of seeing kids you know, grow to their full potential at this point unless we do everything differently. And so be different, do different, get connected. If you weren't supposed to be here, you wouldn't have showed up right now at the tipping point of human history. You showed up right now because you're freaking on purpose. We're at the tipping point and you jumped in to say, I'm going to put my foot on this side of the teeter-totter and say, let's do it differently. Let's figure out regenerative, not just agriculture. Let's not just figure out regenerative medicine. Let's figure out regenerative education for our children. Let's figure out regenerative energy systems that aren't just green they're actually planet forward. They're actually going beyond sustainability to actually create more resources from Mother Earth rather than less. We can reach all of that is in reach in the next two generations. And if we don't reach for it, we will go away and, and dissipate into that energy field to hopefully grow and expand in our death. Or we recreate now in the body, we reinvent ourselves, we reimagine our potential. And that's where we're going to go. And I, th I believe you guys are going to do it because if, if it's not you, then why would have you showed up right now? Uh, yeah, all I can say is hallelujah, amen, giver, let's get her done. People, after you watch Farmer's Footprint, get off from behind Netflix and, you know, go out there and like, you know, you said, Zach Bush, Dr. Bush, um, go take your shoes off and go out there and help the people who need the help. If you're not going to do it yourself, you can support somebody else in your community. Um, how can people get in touch with you? Where should they go to get more information? Where should these farmers go so they can sign up um, immediately for, you know, your courses to have you come speak, all of that good stuff? Farmersfootprint.us. It's all of us that are going to solve it. So farmersfootprint.us us. It's going to get you to the website with the documentary. And following the documentary, you have the opportunity to support the movement with uh, financials. But we also want you to go beyond the money and, and support us with your time, your resources. It's been amazing outpouring from corporations on down to individuals saying, we're totally going to align ourselves with this. We have corporations that are starting to pledge a certain dollar of every sale or an amount per, per unit of sale. 
uh, to, to go directly to the farmers now. And so we're there to, to allow you to use whatever you're doing for the world, allow you to bring this, this alongside of you, whether it's your corporation, your small company, or your family, to, to commit a small amount of your monthly food budget to the farmers is a cool idea. You know, if we're going to spend this much on food, how cool would it be to spend 10% of that on a future of food and, and make this investment now so that my grandchildren might have the opportunity to actually eat food. And so that that's the, the, the reinvestment we're asking for. But then we believe that you're going to be really inspired in other ways, not just through the documentary, but through the education systems that are now uh, going to be emerging in these next few months to become part of that. Maybe you're going to become a, a soil advocate and we have a training program for anybody with any background to become a soil advocate, learn the science so you can become a force of change in your environment. And so from soil advocacy all the way to farming, uh, we can we can put you in somewhere in that workforce and become part of that solution. So farmersfootprint.us. Uh, for just general education around all of this, around health, I've got uh, knowledge points on everything from you know childbirth and pregnancy all the way to uh, autoimmune disease and cancer and how this, you know, everything we've talked about today, how does that relate to these little topics we've been talk, told to believe in disease and how does that unbury the, the root cause and solutions for us at ZachBushMD.com. It's just a free website of just like lots of good stuff for you to dive into and entry points for you to start thinking about in your own life how you want to reapply your knowledge base to become a force of change. That is amazing. You know how to contact uh, Dr. Zach Bush at farmersfootprint.us.us. Um, Zach, it's been amazing chatting with you. And like I said, I could chat with you for hours, but I do want to respect your time um, so you can head back to your family or wherever you're off to next. So I hope we get a chance to do another podcast because I have about 20 more questions that I would love to dive into. Um, and yeah, together, everyone, we can be the force in the world we can be the change that's needed um, we can reverse all this damage that's happened up to now it's not all doom and gloom there's so much hope and visit uh, Dr. Zach Bush's website for so much information so that you can be inspired to start making change today thanks for being with us thank you for having me thank you all Wow, what a show, and I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope it got you riled up and thinking and potentially even, you know, took you out from behind the knees to think about the state of our world if you haven't been thinking about those things. Um, but I also hope that it inspired you because I think the numbers that Dr. Zach Bush threw out there around farmers and how long it takes and actually actually how short it would take for farmers to turn their fields around to make them productive, thriving, nutrient-dense, life-giving, um, soil-rich, um, microbiome, um, enlightening, you know, um, contribution to this planet, well... It's a short period of time and you know what it's going to take everybody out there who's listening to this, who've heard, who's heard this podcast, who listened to the two podcasts on Rich Roll, who checked out Farmer's Footprint. It's going to take everybody's efforts to go out there and educate the physicians and the scientists and your neighbors and your colleagues at work and your family members get them to get rid of the roundup bottles that they have in their garages because one of the things that I don't know if Zach Bush mentioned but you know it really is the households that are using a huge amount of the roundup that contains the antibiotic glyphosate so it's really important that we get rid of it once and for all please do that in a safe way 
I want to know what you thought about this podcast. Um, were there questions that you want me to ask Dr. Bush the next time when we have him on? Because we are definitely going to have to do another show. If there are, please email those questions to me at info at richerhealth.ca. What questions did you want to know? I know one of the questions I wanted to ask was, what do we do about all the mushrooms that, you know, everybody's consuming in high quantities? But the thing that we need to understand is that glyphosate is a water-soluble chemical. It's a water-soluble molecule. And so really the fungi, the fungi, um, the mushroom life system that's all around and present in the soil and beneath our feet, it's actually responsible for soaking up a lot of these toxins, not just glyphosate, but so many chemicals on the planet that um, are decimating the world. Well, it gets soaked up by these mushrooms. So maybe 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago, it was great to eat mushrooms. You know, according to traditional Chinese medicine, I mean, they consume vast amount of mushrooms. But what about today in such a very short period of time, really from like the last 80 years and truly since like 1986, when we saw a lot of these chemicals being dumped into our our world? Is it really truly safe to eat those mushrooms if they are responsible for actually also cleaning up those toxins and um, breaking them down? So that's one question that I'd love to know. And if you have any questions, like I said, email me and I'll be sure to ask them in the next podcast with Dr. Zach Bush. Uh, as well, some of the things that you should know about that's coming up for us. I am teaching a five-day retreat at Hollyhock and you can find that information on our website at richerhealth.ca. Hollyhock is an incredible wellness center on Cortez Island in British Columbia. I've been there before to take amazing retreats and workshops and do the SVI program, which every entrepreneur on the planet needs to do. And I get to teach our program there, which I'm so excited about, but we only have a couple more seats. So please get your tickets now reserve your accommodation. It's going to be an incredible five days where I teach you how to use food as medicine, organic, plant-based, whole foods, unrefined food as medicine to reverse chronic disease. It doesn't matter what kind of chronic disease you have. It could be anything and everything from multiple sclerosis to infertility, autoimmune, diabetes, uh, heart disease. Um, I mean, there's so many, there's hundreds of different types of chronic diseases and even cancer. You can attend our retreat. You're going to learn how to use food as medicine so that you can put those practices in place in your own kitchen with your families and your loved ones. And you can turn your health around to get off meds, to get off, to get your doctors to cancel your surgery and to really truly reclaim your life and your energy so that you can get out there into the world to reclaim our soils, to protect our water and air systems, to feed other people. You may want to open up your own green mustache one day like I've done. Um, we now have seven locations in British Columbia and Alberta, and we need more people who are passionate about health, passionate about nutrient-dense food, passionate about organic food that's grown in nutrient-rich soil. Um, we need those people who want to be entrepreneurs, who love making people healthy, to reach out to us so we can teach you how to open up a green mustache. We're not opening up another one until um, 2020, which seems like so far off, but we know it's going to sneak up on us. But please reach out to us because it does take time for you to get through the interview process because we're pretty stringent on who we accept. Um, but yeah, if you have a passion and passion for bringing health to your community, reach out to us for sure. 
Um, I hope this makes a case, this podcast makes a case for why we are so adamant about organic food at the Green Mustache. Um, Yes, I do wish we can hug every single farmer that we get our food from. We do get to hug quite a few, actually. So we're lucky living in the Pemberton Valley. We have incredible farmers. They are our heroes. They're the ones who are there day in and day out growing the food for our restaurant. Um, And some of our food does have to come from, you know, far away, but Fortunately, we never compromise when it comes to organic food. It's always organic. And definitely after this podcast, um, I'm going to get our team into not just trusting our distributors, even though our distributors do such an incredible job, uh, Discovery Organics. Um, We have West Coast Produce, Jiva Organics. They do such an incredible job of vetting our farmers and making sure they only get the best produce from the best farmers and, you know, food that's fair trade as well as organic. Um, But yeah, it's a conversation I'm going to be having with our suppliers and the farmers where we get our food from to say, hey, you know what? We absolutely need you to listen to um, the teachings of Dr. Zach Bush. Start implementing this into your farming practice if you haven't already um, and to support them as well. So if you have any comments, we'd love to your feedback. I'd love to hear what you thought about this podcast as well. So please share it with your friends, um, the farmers, community members, family members who maybe need that extra bit of inspiration and push and knowledge and some science um, to encourage them to make the changes as to what they put in their mouth every single day because ultimately we can eat food that harms our body or we can eat food that heals our body. So please stay tuned for our next podcast, um, which we'll be having with an incredible woman out of California who, instead of going down the medication route for her depression after having built an incredible company, um, she pretty much burnt herself out. um, And, you know, we're going to be interviewing her and talking about how she decided to take her health into her own hands, not to listen to the doctors and instead found another way through the depression, out through the other side, where she is living and thriving now. So stay tuned, check out the other Eat Real to Heal podcast, and be well, be healthy, be kind to others. 